if you think about the Emergencies Act as just the replacement for the War Measures Act without more stringent thresholds, as if we didn't learn the lessons of the October crisis, well, the government thinks it's the hammer that it needs to drive in a particular nail, which is to just get rid of a lawful protest, largely lawful protest in Ottawa. And the precedent of that, if we allow that to stand, is really quite disturbing. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Today's episode is the second in a special two-part series featuring interviews guest-hosted by Runnymede alumni. In today's episode, Daniel Escott, the president of Runnymede's University of New Brunswick chapter during the 2021-2022 school year, hosts Professor Ryan Alford of Lakehead University for a conversation about the blockade of downtown Ottawa and the unprecedented invocation of the Federal Emergencies Act that followed in February 2022. This interview was originally hosted by Runnymede's UNB chapter in March 2022. Thank you everyone for uh, for joining. My name is Daniel Escott. I am joined by Professor Ryan Alford of Lakehead University. Uh, I am very excited about what we're going to be discussing this evening, uh, but before we get into the meat, just a little bit of a background for those of you who are unfamiliar with Professor Alford. Professor Alford uh, has a doctorate in public constitutional and international law from the University of South Africa. He also has a master's degree from Oxford University and a law degree from New York University. He's called to the bar in Ontario, and he's also a uh, attorney and counselor at law in the state of New York. Uh, right now, he is serving as a professor at Boralaskan School of Law. Uh, and for those of you who are unfamiliar with uh, Boralaskan, they are the Faculty of Law of Lakehead. All right. Well, Professor Alfred, thank you for joining me this evening. It's really my pleasure, Daniel. Uh, and it's good to be back, at least virtually, with the University of New Brunswick Faculty of Law. Hopefully in person soon. I, I was just about to say, I can't wait to hopefully get you down next year. I'm sure we'll be able to uh, to make that happen once uh, once we're back at what I would possibly consider a normal <laughs> school year. So this evening uh, is going to be a bit of a discussion on the precedent and consequences of the implementation of the Emergencies Act, uh, which was quite a surprise, I believe, to the entire legal community. Bit of a, I think it's fair to say, unprecedented territory for us. And because of that, you know, we all have a bit of an interest as law students in, you know, what what is this? What does this mean? Uh, frankly, I don't think it's something that many of us have even studied because it was never really anticipated in uh, in a curriculum before. So before we really uh, get into the, the meat and potatoes, I'd like to open up with a bit of a, a broad informational question. Uh, Professor, the Emergencies Act is a never-before-used act, uh, enacted in 1985 to replace the War Measures Act. And it's not keenly studied by law students, at least not to my knowledge. So would you be able to give us a bit of a brief summary of the act and what it allows the federal government to do? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, it's a replacement for the War Measures Act, and that's critical. So what it's intended to do is to provide the federal government with jurisdiction to act in a crisis, primarily to do things that the provinces normally do. 
but to have jurisdiction to do so owing to the nature of the crisis. So just um, if you took constitutional law and you had a case called Anti-Inflation Act Reference, there's a very important dissent, possibly the most important dissent in Canadian history by Justice Bates. And he talks about how the POG power isn't just residual. It allows the federal government to assume jurisdiction essentially because of necessity. So the Anti-Inflation Act reference says, well, this has to be cabined, right? If there isn't an emergency that the provinces can't handle, then there's no basis for jurisdiction on the part of the federal government. So what the Emergencies Act does is it formalizes in a statute this jurisdictional basis for the federal government. So critically, and I think we'll hit upon this point later, if the statutory basis for the Emergencies Act is not met, so if we're acting outside of the legislative grant of power, the federal government is also acting ultra vires section 92, um, which is a real problem. But as to what the Emergencies Act does, well, it, it creates higher barriers for the federal government to invoke, and because it's the cabinet's invocation, essentially a state of emergency to, to, to deal with different types of emergencies. So it breaks down various types of emergencies, including public health, including public order, how the government can invoke this special basis for emergency powers. But then critically, also, it limits what can be done in that situation. And it indicates under which conditions it can act pursuant to one of those declarations. So it's very broad and varied. It's really hard to encapsulate everything the Emergencies Act allows for. But I guess I would just break it down into a few categories. It states, there is, if there is an emergency that the provinces can handle, there's a possibility that the government might have jurisdiction to invoke the Emergencies Act and deal with it um, by regulation. So to use orders in council from the governor and council. So that's just a cabinet um, issuing regulations that have the force of statute. It indicates how, how, what it can do with those regulations. And it also indicates the limits of invoking those states of emergency. And then it also has limits as to what can be done pursuant to those states of emergency. Wow, there's a lot to dissect there. Um, but I, I, I wanna, circle back to perhaps uh, the beginning and we can take it the whole way through. Uh, you mentioned that there has to be a, a threshold or a, a statutory threshold that needs to be met. My understanding is it's a considerably high bar. Um, would you mind explaining what that bar is and you know what factors are considered in you know whether or not it is met? So there are two. So first you have essentially the jurisdictional basis, which is set in the Emergencies Act to reflect Anti-Inflation Act reference. So essentially, if no other law or any other sets of law, federally or provincially, is enough to deal with the crisis, that's when you can start to think about invoking the Emergencies Act. So it's an absolute non-starter if any provincial law, any federal law, or any set of provincial or federal laws is sufficient to deal with the crisis. So just to illustrate how that works. So there was a pretty thoroughgoing discussion in Canadian legal circles at the beginning of the pandemic as to whether or not the federal government could invoke the Emergencies Act to deal with the pandemic itself. So to do things like send in the military, set up field hospitals, and to you know deal with uh, an exponentially growing case rate 
which is going to exceed all um, hospital beds across the country. And the immediate discussion around that point was, well, has everything been done to date that could be done? And the, the real hang up there was there hadn't been an invocation of what was called the Emergency Measures Act. So there was another federal statute that would have allowed the federal government just to dump money and resources upon the provinces. And given that that statute hadn't been invoked and there had been no, because this is squarely within federal jurisdiction, right? Just to provide assistance to the provinces. It was pretty clear that that first threshold wasn't met. So well, if you haven't used the Emergency Measures Act, how can you talk about the Emergencies Act? So that's the first thing we need to worry about. Then the Emergencies Act being a replacement for the War Measures Act is much more stringent than that. It then says, okay, well, what type of emergency is this? Is this you know, a war or invasion? Is it a public health crisis? Or is it a public order emergency? This is the category that was invoked on February 15th of this year. If it is allegedly within this category, is this the kind of emergency that we're going to allow the government to address with the Emergencies Act? So crucially, there has to be a, a very particular kind of threat to the country for there to be a properly declared public order emergency. What's critical in that threshold, I would just point to two factors. One, that there has to be a threat to the territorial integrity or security of Canada. That's the magnitude of the threat that we're contemplating with respect to this type of public order emergency. And then secondly, it has to be on the part of certain types of participants who have particular goals in mind. So essentially, one way of paraphrasing that and the way it was met here was to say, well, this is a terrorist threat. These are terrorists who are contemplating acts of violence that go beyond mere acts of violence, but which go to a threat to the security or territorial integrity of Canada with the aim of producing a certain kind of change or achieving a certain kind of political outcome. So what we saw in the reasons that were filed pursuant to the Emergencies Act, uh, I believe on February 22nd, when the debate was commenced in the House of Commons, they said, well, the convoy protesters are linked to ideologically motivated violent extremists, which is the language used in the criminal code to designate that kind of terrorist threat. And so you need to have that kind of an allegation that not only is there a threat that we can't deal with with all the laws of Canada, it has to be big enough to threaten the security or, or territorial integrity of Canada. And it has to be on the part of people who are trying to produce a certain kind of political effect um, of the type that we would normally characterize as terrorism or revolutionary activity. So there's there something that you just mentioned that I'd like to touch on, uh, which was the, you know, the specific language that was being used to characterize the truckers. Uh, you know, they were they were very specific in trying to describe uh, the truckers as you know actors who are challenging the territorial security and integrity of the country, uh, trying to affect some sort of political outcome. Uh, was that perhaps a, a bit far fetched, or was or was there at least some indication on the uh, on the information that was used in that debate that might have given them enough to stand on there? Or, let, or let me break that out into two questions. Sure. The first essentially has to do with the scope of that definition of wanting 
um, to affect a political change through violence that goes to the security of Canada. Do we construe that narrowly or do we construe that broadly? Um, and I think the Emergencies Act was designed to be construed very narrowly. So what it replaces is the War Measures Act. And the War Measures Act had as its trigger what they called an apprehended insurrection. It was the idea that there were people trying to overthrow the government. And in 1970, during the... Um, October crisis, it was the government of Quebec that allegedly there was a plot on behalf of student activists and trade union activists to overthrow the government of Quebec to force a negotiated solution to the kidnapping of um, James Cross, the diplomat who was still alive, kidnapped by the FLQ. So what was the basis for the War Measures Act was not the terrorist activities of the FLQ, but rather this broader insurrection which Pierre Trudeau asserted that he had caught red-handed. That was his allegation at the time. Many people shortly thereafter felt hoodwinked, including the leader of the Conservative Party, Robert Stansfield. Uh, Tommy Douglas never bought it. That was the head of what was the NDP at the time. He thought, he thought that the threshold wasn't triggered. So if it's narrower than the War Measures Act, it has to be something worse than just an act of apprehended insurrection. It can't be just this conspiracy of people who are intending to use violence to overthrow the government. Um, so what would that consist in? Well, it has to be more than just conspiracy. That's the key. It would have to actually be something for which there is a rational basis to conclude that people are in the course of a revolutionary uprising or an attempt to overthrow the government. So that's when I think we should bring in this evidence about the trucker convoy protest. Because again, if we had this broad definition of, well, do they seek political change? Well, are they connected to people who think that the use of violence might be warranted to affect that change? Well, and you know, this was a very interesting point. You had um, the Minister of Public Safety when asked about this, so what are the links between specifically between the people who are ready to use violence, who were apparently on the fringes of the Coots blockade to the organizers of the trucker convoy in Ottawa. Well, he, he really backed off. And then when they said um, in the reasons that were tabled in parliament, well, it's, it's ideological links, that the convoy protest is creating a space for people to make arguments, right? And around that space, you now have other people unconnected with the trucker convoy protest, who would seek to use force to overthrow the government of Canada, seeking to affiliate themselves ideologically to it, right? Now, is that enough of a basis to say that the trucker convoy protest, which involved not just the occupation of Ottawa, but the blockades, I would say at Coots and Windsor, is something more stringent than an apprehended insurrection, but rather, rather an insurrection in course, right? And so now the next bit of evidence that was brought in, you see this on, um, in the national media being put out by advisors to the government of Canada. So for instance, the national security advisor of the government of Canada said, well, um, well, they had made these statements about how they wanted to meet with the governor general of Canada and seek the resignation of the prime minister. Okay. So if that's what you're doing, is that enough to meet the threshold, which really should be higher than apprehended insurrection? I would argue no. I think that what we're talking about here is people who don't understand how the Canadian political system works. So 
what we're effectively doing when we use this as evidence against the truckers, who of course are, you know, semi-skilled workers, right? Who do a job that doesn't require college education. What we're saying is, well, you, you, your, your sense of how Canadian politics works is not adequate. You didn't learn civics well enough in high school. So instead of saying, we seek to meet with um, members of parliament and other political figures to work towards the passage of a motion of non-confidence in the government of minority government of Justin Trudeau, right? That instead they said something a little bit more ignorant about how, well, the governor general is someone we have to meet with or whatever, but still it doesn't get the job done. They were talking about, and this was, by the way, they corrected this in the course of their um, protest. They said, oh, well, we've been informed by lawyers. That's not how the political process works. They backed off from it. But critically, at no point did they say that they were going to use violence to accomplish this end, which is why we had to have these allegations of the ideological links, right, to other groups of the type that I don't really think gets the job done with respect to the technicalities of the Emergencies Act. But I thought it was really cynical to say that, well, they were seeking um, violent um, change just because they said we wanted the prime minister to be forced to resign or something like this. Um, but again, more and more evidence is coming out about this. And I think it's coming out slowly and it's been coming out in the course of uh, parliamentary committee deliberations. So just what came out today before uh, a committee of the House of Commons called the Public Safety and National Security Committee, that there were no firearms arrests connected with the trucker convoy protests in Ottawa. So essentially, there's no evidence whatsoever that anyone involved with the trucker convoy protest in Ottawa had on them at any of the relevant times a firearm, which is something you'd expect if they intended the violent overthrow of the government of Canada. So I think we really need to get much more in the way of evidence, not just to show that this was actually intended um, or plausible, but there, there was even a rational basis to assume that these people had that intention, which of course is the threshold for the application uh, of the Emergencies Act when it is reviewed upon judicial review, which I think is going to be a really important piece along with the parliamentary committees to some accountability and oversight for these assertions that the jurisdictional basis had been present. So I think then it, it would be safe to say, uh, Professor, that at least based on the understanding of the situation uh, at its peak, let's say February 14th, February 15th, uh, that the threshold should not have been met in the first place. Um, and that- what there's, was, there's two elements to this, right? Right. The first would be, would any laws suffice to deal with this? And what are we dealing with? We're dealing with a protest, right? This is constitutionally protected activity. You can't point to the protest or the message of the protest and say, well, we need to shut that down. What you need to say is we want to shut down the illegal activity. So what was illegal about the Ottawa occupation? Noise disturbances, bylaw complaints, right? Things of that nature. Did we have laws to enforce this? Yes. Were they being enforced? Yes. It took time. I mean, if you lived in Ottawa, as my mother does, people express quite a lot of frustration that, for instance, the injunction process and the enforcement of the injunction process was taking time to move forward. But there was no indication that that was going to be insufficient to deal with the illegal aspects of the occupation. So when, in fact, you have the government saying the problem is the protest itself, 
and we don't have the tools to shut this down. What effectively the government was asserting is we can't prevent these people from exercising their charter rights with the constitutional apparatus that we have. We need to use emergency powers to, to stop these people from exercising their charter rights, particularly freedom of peaceable assembly. And well, I'm sorry, that's just not the way the Emergencies Act works, not with respect to its jurisdictional basis or what it can accomplish. But if you think about the Emergencies Act as just the replacement for the War Measures Act without more stringent thresholds, as if we didn't learn the lessons of the October crisis, well, the government thinks it's the hammer that it needs to drive in a particular nail, which is to just get rid of a lawful protest, largely lawful protest in Ottawa. And the precedent of that, if we allow that to stand, is really quite disturbing. So, you know, we, we have the benefit of hindsight now that the act was revoked on February 23rd. Uh, and much like you said, you know, there, there was a lot of uh, enforcement of the standing laws, you know, that the way that the actual implementation of the Emergency Act manifests which is largely in, uh, you know, RCMP coordination, moving resources around, uh, getting people into the right places at the right time. So I, I think the, the golden ticket question here is, was enacting the, the Emergencies Act necessary to accomplish these effects or would a more strict enforcement of the standing law have sufficed? And to do what? I mean, because the idea is to shut down all protest activity, right? You need something more than just existing laws because, well, the Constitution doesn't allow you to do that. You can't just, I mean, there, there are two things that were done, I think, which were um, central to the Emergencies Act. So the regulations passed pursuant to the promulgation of the Emergencies Act. The, the, the two most important ones were these. One was declaring Parliament Hill and environs a protest-free zone, just saying you cannot engage in constitutionally protected activity here, rather than going through the typical process of allowing the courts to balance, you know, um, the rights of the people in that area, like as we typically do. Like if you take constitutional law and you do it out of the book that I teach, you get to a case where strip clubs in Montreal were using loudspeakers in a way that disturbed the peace of a lot of people in downtown Montreal. Well, unfortunately, those strip club owners have free speech rights. So we had to analyze whether or not the particular means of reducing the volume was consistent right, with those charter rights and whether or not it could be justified as a reasonable limitation. So they wanted to say, well, you can't have a protest period in downtown Ottawa, even a silent protest, right? That's what was barred. So at the peak of the Emergencies Act, you couldn't go there with a sign saying, I believe the Emergencies Act has no jurisdictional basis to shut down this protest. And you walk with that sign on Parliament Hill, well, you're arrested for violating a regulation under the Emergencies Act and you can be jailed for up to five years, right? Um, but the other one, perhaps even more problematic, was the banking regulations. And we know this was critical to the government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act because Christia Freeland has spoken about how she spoke to a number of Acadian banks prior to the promulgation of the Emergencies Act. And she said, well, can't you just freeze their accounts? And the bank said, well, not without court orders, we can't. I mean, you have to go through normal court process to do this. And she said, well, we want something more than that. We want to create a massive chilling effect on protest. David Lametti later confirmed that was the purpose of this, right? Was to give people pause as to whether or not they wanted to engage in the protest. 
not necessarily engage in illegal activity, but to engage in constitutionally protected activity on the basis of not knowing whether or not they'd be debanked. And they gave the banks all the incentives to be over-inclusive because they said, we need you to do this. And if you don't, you'll be in real trouble. You'll be in violation of the Emergencies Act if you don't do this. And then they said, we're going to give you indemnity if you're over-inclusive and somebody who had no connection to the truck convoy protest whatsoever is debanked and someone forecloses on their house and you know, they suffer hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage, possibly millions, that you're immune. You won't have to pay a penny. You know in advance that you can't be sued over this. Well, so that's really what they wanted to do with the Emergencies Act. It is what they did. And the question is, do they have a basis to do it? And is the way that they did it consistent with charter rights? I think the answer to all those questions is no. So when it, when it comes to, you know, what is next? And I think that's a question a lot of the students have, because, uh, you know, at least some of us are about to get into practice. Um, there, there's, a, there's this question of, you know, what does this really mean? You know, the, the implementation of the Emergencies Act this round, at the very least, has come and gone. And, you know, we, we've seen the act implemented, police exercised authority under it, arrests were made, accounts were frozen. When it comes to what the next stage in the evolution of the Emergencies Act uh, saga is, you know, what precedent does this really set uh, in the legal sphere uh, for the future of, you know, quote unquote, national emergencies? So I think it will depend very much on what happens in the various inquiries that are about to begin. So let's just re remember that various parliamentary committees, including a special committee of both houses of parliament, uh, they're looking into whether or not this was appropriate. There are also legal challenges, which I think will proceed and there's finally going to be an inquiry under the Inquiries Act, uh, if indeed the government follows the requirements of the Emergencies Act. So there'll be essentially a commission of inquiry into the implementation of the Emergencies Act. So that the, the, the lessons that we learn will depend very much on what comes out, I think, in the course of these inquiries. But let me give you my fear. If we don't take the correct lessons from this, the lesson that the government will take is that you can shut down any protest that you don't like, regardless of whether or not the people engaged in it are violating the law. And that they'll do so based on their perception of the message being spread by the protesters. Now, that's what we, we explicitly avoid in our constitutional order. We do not let the government engage in what's called viewpoint discrimination when it comes to people exercising freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. Freedom of assembly has been referred to by the Supreme Court of Canada numerous times as freedom of speech in action. You have that ability to do this, you know, so that you can make your, your freedom of speech um, operative, so that you can, you can get the message out effectively. So do we want to live in a society where the government says, well, you know, these are our, our Black Lives Matter protests um, and we really hate their message. Let's just say some hypothetical change of government happens where, you know, um, the prime minister would really dislike Black Lives Matter. And he can just say, well, I don't like their message. I don't like the fact that they're here on Parliament Hill. I've decided that this is out of hand. Something needs to be done. The police in Ottawa are really not um, being as aggressive as I'd like. 
they should handle it the way they dealt with the G20 and G8 protests in Toronto about you know 14 years ago, just round everybody up. Um, you know, um, and I'd like to indemnify the police so that there won't be a class action settlement of $16.5 million, as was the case with the, um, the G20 protests. Uh, that settlement was achieved only this year, by the way. Um, so the Emergencies Act, if it's normalized, this allows the government to make calls about how, well, if this is an anti-government protest, and again, that's the language that they're beginning to use, right? That when you're protesting what the government does, which is typically what protests are, right? Um, that you can characterize them as anti-government. You can then say, well, it's too dangerous to allow this to continue and you can shut them down. And it will depend very much on whether the government, as Justin Trudeau says, thinks the protest is spreading a good message, as Justin Trudeau said about BLM, right? We agree with what they're saying, right? Um, or whether or not we disagree. This is very dystopian and quite far outside of the bounds of our constitutional order as it currently exists. So these are the stakes with the precedent that this is going to set. You mentioned uh, the banking regulations and you know what that might mean in the future uh, as well. And I am a little curious on your take about this because uh, I've been thinking about it more and more. Um, there was a mention, I believe, by uh, by Minister Freeland that at least some of the banking regulations might actually kick around uh, in a permanent fashion one way or the other. And I am curious on what your take is about, you know, are they, if they do stay, you know, as their own regulations or they're, you know, enshrined in uh, their own statute later on down the road, would they still be colored by their original intent? Or, you know, is there a way you think that they could end up being saved? Well, yes, she did indicate that. She said that she would introduce legislation into Parliament to make this a permanent feature of our legal system. So when that's introduced, I think people in Parliament are going to have questions, certainly. Uh, there's currently now, as of yesterday, an agreement of confidence and supply between the NDP and the Liberals that gives them the numerical majority to pass this. Um, we've also seen in the course of the Emergencies Act debate that the Liberal government is quite willing to label things confidence votes that really aren't confidence votes. So um, I think it's contemplated that the NDP are going to support legislation of that type. Um, how are the courts going to view it? This is the question. And the statements that Friedland made, um, which appear to be constitutionally suspect, they may be the kind of thing that influenced the court's decision ultimately about whether or not this had an unconstitutional purpose, that the aim was to inhibit freedom of speech. The aim is to shut down freedom of assembly. Um, I think there's a more fundamental question, though. It's whether or not we would tolerate this at all for any reason, because the growth of our rule of law, I'm very much a constitutional historian. Uh, and I've written a couple of books about how the protections that we have that are essential to our rule of law came out of constitutional crises, of which this is a kind of a, a minor example. But in each of those crises, the, um, the government, the executive, the most powerful actor in the political system, always says, well, how do we exert maximum pressure on people so that we can operate with impunity? and ignore the existing constitutional restrictions. So what I frequently talk about is habeas corpus, which prevents you from arresting people and detaining them indefinitely, right? 
it was initially thought of as a supplementation of Magna Carta. So Blackstone calls it a second Magna Carta. And in Blackstone's Institutes, what he says is, well, you know, it's the executive wouldn't try to just kill someone on their own authority anymore. I mean, not outside of drone strokes, drone strikes anymore, um, <laughs> at the very least. But what they do rather than kill someone is they subject them to prolonged arbitrary detention. And that's just as good. It's just as effective as, as killing someone to prevent someone from exercising their constitutional rights, which is what the rule of law protects, right? Your involvement in political activity, your participation in a citizen, such that this is not you know, an absolutist um, government, right? Where they don't have to consider the will of the people. That's what the rule of law protects. So, okay, now the government cannot kill you without due process. <laughs> they can't really kill you at all nowadays. They can't detain you indefinitely with no legal basis. They can't subject you to cruel and unusual punishment. So what's the next best thing that they can do? They can debank you. They can make you a non-person. They can make it impossible for you to participate in the economic system. That is just as effective. That is going to marginalize people just as effectively as putting them in prison. If you can't buy or sell because you don't have any access to the financial system, you can't have a bank account, you can't even use a shadow banking system, Money Mart would, would turn you away, right? Western Union would turn you away. How can you in any way be considered a citizen who has any basis for participating in the political process and exercising your constitutional rights? And the answer is you can't. And that's very much what this is aimed to do. You see Justin Trudeau even today speaking in Brussels saying, well, we have to deal with these people. These people are Pied Pipers. They are going to um, convince people that the government is their enemy that rather than seeking redress by asking the government to do things for them, they're going to de make demands on the government, right? Demands for changes. That's what he sees as a threat to the Canadian constitutional order. Um, we have to now think about whether or not debanking is really just a means to take those people that Justin Trudeau previously said we should openly contemplate not tolerating, right? Because they're outside of the boundaries of what is acceptable in Canadian society. This is what he's, this is the means to accomplish that task is, is the debanking. Um, I really think it's a really dubious constitutionality, but even on a more fundamental level, it's a threat to the rule of law. We need to understand, I mean, all of this is, you know, very live. The, the wound is very open. Uh, but, you know, there are a lot of court challenges. I do mean a lot of court challenges to the debanking. Uh, just generally, uh, I would imagine there might be uh, some corporate challenges as well. There's challenges to the arrests that were being made. And then, of course, there's all the, uh, the prospect of parliamentary oversight and an inquiry. So you hinted at this uh, a few minutes ago, but, you know, we'll see how this plays out in court. And I'm knowing that this might end up uh, being a bit of an arbitrary constitutional line drawing exercise. Uh, what consequences do you anticipate are going to flow from these cases and constitutional challenges as we go through the you know, possibly decades long legal process? Well, we're going to see one or two types of reactions to all of the outcomes of these legal challenges. So essentially, what I anticipate is that there'll be quite a lot of 
strong criticism of the government coming out of the courts, ultimately. But the question is going to be whether the public views this as technicalities. And so this is the same after every single crisis, right? I mean, with respect to the war on terror, when we finally got habeas corpus recognized for prisoners of the war on terror, um, some people drew the conclusion, oh, well, you know, the government didn't dot its I's and cross its T's. It didn't provide for the right kind of legal procedure or what have you. Okay, well, that's the problem. Um, and, but then other people were more alive to the issue of the basic level of contempt that the government was showing for not just particular legal rights, but the constitutional order itself. So I think we're either going to arrive at a terminus where the Canadian public say, well, what was the big deal? You know, the government kind of just overstepped its bounds a little bit. You know, they didn't get good legal advice. So they, they moved a little bit too quickly and they broke things. Well, that's okay. It's just disruptive. It's, you know, the time's changing. And well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll learn to be a little more cautious in the future. Or whether we say this, well, it's okay that they did that because really the problem is the protesters had the wrong views. Everything is acceptable insofar as these people really are outside of the boundaries of the Cadian mainstream. They have ideas that no moral person would espouse. And I find it really interesting. So I hear people talking about the trucker convoy and among the people who are really um, uh, upset about what happened, most of whom were not in Ottawa or Windsor or wherever, um, a lot of them call the trucker convoy protesters white supremacists. And I find this really confusing, um, not least because, I mean, if you look at footage of the protests, you can see a lot of non-white people, right? I mean, the trucking industry in, in BC is about half Sikh, right? And they were very well represented among the convoy protesters that came from BC to Ottawa. And so how are these white supremacists exactly? Well, it, it's largely just a notion, I think, that there's a set of ideas that, that run in parallel. So anti, and you hear this again, the discourse, the prime minister, people who are anti-science, who are misogynistic, who are Islamophobic, who are um, anti-vax, who are um, white supremacists, right? That, he didn't even use that, but that gets lumped in with that set of views. And the idea is, well, every time people try to somehow spread those views or um, have influence or to try to be considered on the basis of having those views within the Cadian political structure. Well, they just deserve whatever they get. And the means don't really matter. That we just have determined that these people are the kind of people who would tear down the kind of society that we seek to achieve. So therefore we need to deal with them brutally, right? Well, unfortunately, if you're a very young person, you don't remember that that's what communism was, right? That's what many, many types of protest movements in Kidian history have been. And if we would have dealt with those people in that manner, we would now be an authoritarian state. But do we care? Do we believe that the constitutional order that we've created, which requires a government to be neutral with respect to how it treats people, regardless of what views they have or what speech they um, manifest or what types of protests they organize, or whether we say, no, we want an end to that system and we want a new type of system. Right. And so I think it's a question of whether or not we value the constitutional order as it exists or whether we think that it needs to be torn down and something else needs to be erected in its place. One that would say, well, no, it's OK for Black Lives Matter protesters to do 
X, Y, and Z, but it's never going to be okay for people who have retrograde views as we characterize them to try to be influential or to spread their message. Now, I, I think that brings us to what I think might be uh, the logical conclusion here is, you know, what what might this all end up with? You know, what, what will the, res- uh, the response by the judiciary be? Uh, you know, if you're trying to spread these views and you end up caught in this whirlwind of, you know, possible avenues of litigation, uh, what do you think the judiciary might prescribe as, you know, if, if they do go uh, one way and say, well, this is clearly an affront to freedom of speech, here's what we're going to give you. Or if they go in the other direction, you know, could this be a, a Keegstra moment of, you know, you're allowed to say so much, but only so far? Um, well, I think that if you look at the history of crises, and I, I would always point people back to history to learn how these dynamics function. What you see is the courts have about as much courage as the population. So it's absolutely remarkable. So this, the analog that I typically point to is Japanese internment. So in the middle of the Second World War, there was a Japanese-American population on the West Coast of the United States. This happened in Canada as well, but I'm going to use the United States as my example here. Um, Canada behaved just as horribly, if not worse. But so many of those people um, were the most loyal American citizens you could imagine. I mean, there are many, many examples of people being rounded up and sent to internment camps wearing medals that they had won, you know, in American military service. Um, And so what did they do? Both in the United States and Canada, um, Japanese Americans, Japanese Canadians who were subjected to internment, uh, they were taken away to camps uh, far away from their homes for the duration of the war, uh, brought court challenges. And the problem is in this situation, the courts were dealing with wartime hysteria. They were dealing with a message that had been spread by the government, which had no empirical basis, that among this population were saboteurs, people who were going to light fires, inhibit the war effort, make the population of California um, vulnerable to what they, what they tried to convince Americans was possible, which was a Japanese invasion of the West Coast of the United States which is all necessary for the kind of um, fever pitch of war organizing that they wanted to to sustain. Um, So the judiciary was in a very difficult position because they knew that it was very popular among the public, despite being grossly unconstitutional. Um, If you want to understand how bad it was, you go and read those cases like Korematsu. There's a dissent by one justice in both the Canadian version, which was called reference reperson of Japanese case, and in the American one, Korematsu. So you have Ivan Rand in Canada and you have Justice Murphy in the United States saying, how could anyone even contemplate this being constitutional? It's a constitutional abomination. Uh, But in that situation, only the justices who are the most courageous will do that. Um, the rest are concerned with the possibility, this is a very real possibility, that the government will just say, well, this just shows the courts are out of step with the population. And if you want to understand how close we are to that kind of an assumption, look at the United States where there's an active debate about whether court packing is justified, where the current nominee for the Supreme Court of the United States has refused to condemn court packing, something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was very clear in rejecting. 
because it effectively reduces the courts to just an adjunct of the government, right? Because you appoint more and more justices just to get whatever result the government wants. Well, so do we want to live in a society where we say, no, the courts play this role of tying us to the mass like Odysseus when we're losing our minds, right? When we hear a siren song of, you know, there's this danger and this can't be tolerated. Do we allow the courts to enforce the constitutional on us, constitutional order on us when we would very much like to be relieved of it? Or do we say, well, this just shows that you're out of step with what the population really wants. So what we need is the legal profession to be this essential cog that drives this transmission of constitutionalism from the courts to the public. We need to be the people who say, the reason why the courts are doing this is not because they're stupid formalists, but because they care about the kind of society that we have, that they don't want us to devolve into a totalitarian legal order, which is a very real possibility. So I think it all hinges on what kind of lessons we learn out of the inquiries, the, the courage of the courts to enforce that, the courage of the legal profession to transmit that to the public, and then a continuing valuation by the public of a neutral constitutional order, rather than essentially the creation of a utopian dream of transforming Canadian society into um, a, a state full of right thinkers. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. This week's episode was guest hosted by Daniel Escott. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now.